So this year, in Advent, for these services, we've been looking at the idea of visitors, that there are certain outsiders that are involved in the story of the birth of Jesus. First, we looked at Gabriel, the angel. Then we looked at the shepherds. And today we look at the magi, the wise men. And for a number of reasons, the magi are the most of the outsiders. Like Gabriel, granted, he's, we think, an immortal angel of God, messenger of of the Most High God, but he's at least within the ballpark. The magi, they're out there. There's a lot of mystery uh, surrounding the magi. And whenever you have a lot of mystery, you, uh, well, it's a fair bet that you're going to have a lot of speculation and a lot of like traditional ideas that probably don't reflect the story that we're given. Um, For example, and I will say this every year when it makes sense to, um, the, the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Well, we, don't, we have no idea how many there were. Uh, they weren't kings, and they weren't from the Orient. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> um, and and I, I think at least some of that speculation, and, and actually uh, it doesn't take too long in terms of the historical record for uh, fanciful names to have been given these supposedly three kings. Like, just nature abhors a vacuum and so does human imagination. Um, What little we're told, we can make some guesses, some pretty good guesses about who they actually were and what they were doing. Uh, See, magi... um, kind of where we get the, the, the word magic from, were a, an Eastern phenomenon. And by that, I don't mean you know, China and Japan. I mean Persians. Persians, Babylonians, give or take. And <clears throat> magi were, um, you could call them like religious civil service. Um, they, um, they, they were the kingmakers of the day. They were the ones who would obsess over things like astrology, putting them very much outside the realm of what we would call biblical faith. Uh, they were very interested in interpreting dreams. But they were the ones within the Parthian Empire, uh, to the east of the Roman Empire, they were the ones who would basically bless uh, those who would become the next king. And this is a phenomenon that's pretty well known to history for the most part, um, well before Jesus and well after Jesus. The Parthian Empire fell like in the early 200s AD. Uh, curiously enough, there is one very famous named Magi that we learn about in the Bible. Does anyone know who that is? This is digging deep into the dumb trivia that you see at like cereal boxes or something. Uh, It's Daniel. Like the prophet Daniel. 
That was one of the things that he did. He was like a, a head magi. Not because he started like reading astrology or something like that. It, again, it was more of a civil service thing. They were the kingmakers. One commentator uh, says that they're, they're kind of like the U.S. Senate. Very powerful. Not president themselves and... Obviously, this is where the analogy breaks down, but they're the ones who would make the president in a different system. Which actually explains how they fit into the story fairly well, right? Um, Jesus is born in the, we don't know exactly when, but the final months to a year or so of the life of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an extraordinarily terrible person. He, um, he killed multiple of his own children, at least three of his own sons that I could name off the top of my head, including, uh, or as well as his favorite wife, um, because he was convinced that they were conspiring against him. So the bit later when when Herod is, is said to have sent out or dispatched some, some people to take care of a bunch of young children trying to get at Jesus. We have no other record of this, but that's, that's Herod. That sounds exactly like something Herod would do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, in, um, in the text, you get a sense that Jerusalem, and by extension Herod, is really unsettled by the arrival of these magi. If they were just travelers um, without any particular importance, they would never would have gained an audience with the king of Judea. So obviously they, they're known as the kingmakers. When you take Herod the Great, who is known to be extremely paranoid and very dangerous, and he has the kingmakers knocking on his door saying, hey, we think the king of the Jews has been born. Can you point us to where he is? Herod the Great is thinking, my time is up. I'm about to lose my power and control over everything. And, and they will be able to access the next king. So he makes the mature option and tries to kill a child. But what, what baffles me about all of this still is that Jesus never, he never sits on a throne that we see. Um, the kingmakers come and visit him and they bring gifts and, and uh, it, it actually, it takes about a hundred years um, his name was Irenaeus, uh, an early church father, to make some connections of, well, this is for his burial, and this is for his... That's a nice idea. I don't really see it in the text. I think they just had... These are nice gifts. But they don't fit. This, if, if they were being dispatched to declare or perhaps even anoint the next king of Judea, which is, if they're Persians slash Parthians, they're, they're basically, this is a diplomatic mission. This is the weirdest mission that they ever would have done. 
Jesus is obviously not the son of Herod, who is the current king. In fact, they need a giant light to point out the house that he and his family are staying at in a little town of, as best we can tell, maybe a thousand people at that time. There's just not a lot there. But they go through their process and they bring him the gifts and 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 again, like these these astrologers who really shouldn't belong in this story are somehow an integrated and celebrated part of it. And then when Herod realizes that he's not going to get the information that he needs, God warns them in a dream, which is very, very like on par for magi. That's you you even see that in Daniel. It's um just one of those weird, eerie connections, parallels to all kinds of other things. And so they get out of town. And you can imagine as they're going back and whoever they report to within the Parthian Empire or in the, uh, some Persian ruler, Persian official, they're going, you can imagine him saying like, okay, so how did that go? And them going, so Judea is weird. Um, you, you wonder if they think that they might, or you wonder if they wondered if they gave the gifts to the wrong kid. Uh, now, Herod the Great dies, and um, basically a small civil war erupts, and it's a mess, and then the Romans have to come in and regain control, and it's a total disaster, and Jesus and his family are taken down to Egypt, which there would have been refugees traveling to Egypt. It all just kind of fits. And again, what strikes me about this, as well as the way Luke tells his story, with the exception of the angels appearing to the shepherds, the story of Jesus' birth, it's kind of mundane. I mean, it's interesting. I can assure you that uh, local kingmakers did not show up to the hospital when I was born. but it's decidedly not that supernatural. You have little glimpses, but that's it. You had a big setup with the angel Gabriel coming and telling a priest, an old priest who frankly should have known better and got a little time out for his idiocy, we'll say. Uh, and you have the angel Gabriel appearing to probably a very scared little uh, young girl saying that she is going to be the, what they will call the Theotokos, the God-bearer. That's a big deal. You have an army of angels appearing to some shepherds, but otherwise, mom and dad are in Bethlehem, and then they give birth, and then that's it. And going along with this theme of just kind of how mundane some of, this, uh, or some of these portions of Jesus' life really are, um, other than a couple of weird interactions in the temple, Jesus then vanishes from history for 30 years. Doing what? Probably swinging a hammer. Studying Torah. Following God. 
That's it. And what I find really, really special about just the mundaneness of the story of Jesus' birth is that that's how my life is. And unless I'm really misreading the crowd here, I'm guessing that's how your life is for the most part. Because sometimes it's easy to get caught up in kind of the emotion and the sentimentality and the, 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 the kind of imagination that has been added on top of the Christmas story to imagine that this whole time everybody was glowing and, and especially Mary and Jesus and, and Joseph is beaming with a little halo around his head or something like that. When in reality, that's not the world that God came to save. God didn't send Jesus to make our world more supernatural or more spooky or more spiritual. God sent his son Jesus into this regular old world that experiences its cold and rainy days when the boiler doesn't work. Well, not 2,000 years ago, but now when the boiler doesn't work and so we're cold and a little crabby or something like that. God sent Jesus into a world full of broken and sometimes difficult people like you and me who live, for the most part, very mundane lives that occasionally get glimpses of the extraordinary. An old uh, professor of mine, strike the fact that I said old, he'd be upset, uh, but a professor of mine at a uh, seminary, uh, kind of just offhand one time in class, just let slip this idea, and it's been rattling in my head ever since. He said, everything about Jesus' life is theologically significant. Um, he said that in the context of being able to say God pooped his pants, very apropos for Christmas. But if Jesus spent the vast majority of his life living in and intera interacting with the mundane world, with occasional weirdness of like the kingmakers showing up at your birth, well, maybe that means that that's the world that he came to redeem, he came to save. He spent his entire life interacting with normal people like you and me, broken by our own sin and our own decisions, um, as well as the decisions and violence of others, in need of some help, in need of saving. So if Jesus came to save the mundane and to redeem the mundane, regular old world, the one that we live in and will spend our entire lives in, then that means he came to save us. So maybe the story of these visitors, one decidedly supernatural, Gabriel, but then the rest just kind of guys doing their jobs is a strong indication that the Jesus that we follow is the one who saves us even in our mundane, everyday, ordinary moments. As we sinful, broken people interact with regular, old, sinful, broken people. And I don't know about you, but that's a story, that's a Christmas story that I find way more compelling than one in which everyone is sort of glowing and being perfect all over the place. Because that's the story that I live in. And 
my story is in desperate need of redemption, and I'm willing to bet yours is too. Amen.